You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I, I always challenge people to name the specific year and place. I've got a time machine. I'm going to teleport you back to the past. It's a one-way trip. You can never return to the future. You name the specific year and place where you want to be an average person, and I will send you there, and nobody ever finishes that sentence. The podcast today is sponsored by Warby Parker, W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R. Warby Parker is a maker of great eyeglasses. Be sure to head to warbyparker.com slash myhistory to order your free home try-ons today. They're going to send you a box and you get to try them on. It's great. In recent years in the United States, each day, about 75,000 people have lost their jobs. Also in recent years, about 85,000 people a day have found jobs. 84% of goods and services consumed by American citizens were produced inside the United States. Most of the decline of U.S. manufacturing employment as a share of GDP in the United States was already over in 2000. 71% of the steel used in the United States is made here. More Americans going upward out of the middle class towards high income than going downward towards low income. Inflation is low, buying power is up, unemployment is down generally on average, violence is down. These are all contentions in Greg Easterbrook's It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. Greg Easterbrook is the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Progress Paradox. He has been a staff writer, national correspondent, or contributing editor of The Atlantic for nearly 40 years. Easterbrook has written for The New Yorker, Science, Wired, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Los Angeles Times. In 2017, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he joins me on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Greg, in addition to your journalism, you're also involved a bit in, in football? Well, my hobby for for a long time has been writing the quirky football column, Tuesday Morning Quarterback, which has appeared in many venues over the years, and I continue to do. What did you think of the Super Bowl? Surprise? Oh, or? It was a wonderful game. I, I, it was Tremendously entertaining for all of the problems that the NFL had this year, political protests, ongoing concerns about neurological harm, ongoing concerns about public subsidies. It all built up to the best game of the year. So, uh, you, you know the saying on Broadway, save the best for last. They, the, the NFL definitely saved the best for last. It was a terrific game. Absolutely. I felt so as well. 
I guess that's a good run-up to what we're talking about because your book deals with things are really better than they look. And I have to say, for uh, many of my listeners and for people in these times, it seems like 2017, just a rough political year. We'll, we'll go over in detail the indicators in a second, and they're almost all positive. Now, of course, everybody's thrown off by the election of Donald Trump. I sure didn't vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I'm sure not happy about him being president. But people, uh, I'll, I'll give you two points, and then we can go over the indicators if you want. Uh, the, the two points about Trump are that, is that Trump is an interruption of the previous almost entirely positive trends. And, and let's say you, you consider Trump an emergency. I don't think it's quite that bad yet. It sadly could become that bad. But let's say Trump actually does constitute an emergency. The history of past emergencies, whether it's 9-11 or natural disasters, is that as soon as the emergency ends, the previous trends resume. And to me, the key point and the, and the point that I try to make in great detail, and it's better than it looks, is that the previous trends in the United States, in almost everywhere, certainly not all countries, but in most countries of the world, the previous trends were almost entirely positive. And I think as soon as we get Trump out of our system, those previous positive trends will resume. Now, let me step back to the previous point. We're talking about 2017. What was going on in 2016? That's the year that 63 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. In that year, unemployment was very low. Inflation was almost negligible. Uh, no primary resource was scarce. Uh, almost all forms of pollution, with a big exception of greenhouse gases, but um, almost all forms of pollution were in a generation-long cycle of decline. Crime was in a generation-long cycle of decline. Disease was in a generation-long cycle of decline. Education rates were rising. Discrimination was declining. Almost everything objective that you could measure about the United States was positive in 2016, and yet Trump convinced 63 million people that, in his words, the country is going to hell. That's a direct quote. Another direct quote, our country has never been in worse condition. That's what people believed. That's why we got Trump, because people believe the wrong thing about the national condition. You touched a bit on uh, the economy, and this is a program that deals with history and the politics of today. And I have a funny time with, say, one particular indicator, and that's inflation. A high inflation atmosphere is not something anyone's experienced, and that's just one. Maybe talk a bit, if you could, about uh, the economic uh, indicators. Well, uh, pe people who are born after about the year 1990 have never experienced inflation. I hope they never do, because inflation clobbers average people. It is the, the two worst things that can happen to average people economically are inflation and unemployment. And we did have high unemployment for two years in, in 08 and 09. Since then, the unemployment has steadily declined. Inflation's been low for almost a full generation. Maybe your listeners know the, the economist con concept called the misery index, which is you add unemployment to inflation. Uh, in the 1970s, both those things were high. It was a horrible time to be anybody, but especially to be an average person. When the country was voting for Donald Trump, when 63 million people were convinced that everything was falling apart, the misery index was the lowest that it had been since the 1950s. I'll give you a couple other quick quick economic references. I'll, I'll just read to you the first uh, half paragraph of the book. On the November 2016 day, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. 
Unemployment was 4.6%, a number that would have caused economists of the 1970s to fall to their knees and kiss the ground. In real dollar terms, gasoline prices were the same as when teenagers rushed to record stores to buy the latest 45 RPM singles. Natural foodstuffs, natural resources and foodstuffs were plentiful. Middle class wages and household income were both in a cycle of increase despite what you hear on cable news. The economy had expanded for 89 consecutive months. Private sector jobs had grown for 80 consecutive months, nearly doubling the previous record of 48 consecutive months. And I go in in some detail. Everything you could measure about the economy not only was good in 2016, it had been good for, for five to ten years, depending on which metric you want to choose. And yet, not only did Trump convince, you could say, oh, well, Trump's, Trump's voters, they're all very foolish. They didn't understand the news. Okay, maybe that's why. But there were lots of smart people who were also totally convinced that everything was going to hell in a handbasket, even though everything you can measure was positive. Some of the stats that I hear people talk about, maybe a bit of alternative stats that you'll hear them talk about a lot from, say, GDP or per capita, is um, income inequality and wage or wa- real wage growth. Income inequality is definitely up. There's no, there's no doubt about that. It's up not not in the whole world. It's up in the United States. It's up in China. It's up in a couple of other important countries. At, First thing is, overall, global income inequality is in a long-term cycle of decline. And that's good. Economic history shows us that as countries develop, they experience cycles of rising and falling in inequality. Most of the world is in a cycle of declining inequality right now, and most importantly, in a cycle of declining poverty. That's, a, that's the key thing. But you look at the United States, there's just no doubt that the top 10%, 5%, or 1%, any one of those slices you want to take, they, they've all commanded more of the nation's income, and let's remember the word income, in the last in, in the last generation. Uh, you ask yourself a conceptual question and then a mathematical question. The conceptual question is, well, if the people at the very top get richer, but everybody else is also better off, is that necessarily a bad outcome? And it's better than it looks. I construct a thought experiment where you can Live in either live in you can choose to live in, in in one of two countries. One, there's terrible poverty for everybody. People are starving to death. There's no material possessions, but there's also no inequality. One is that most people are reasonably pretty well off, but there's a tiny elite of arrogant super rich who roar around in Lamborghinis. So which country would you want to live in? And then I say, aha, this thought experiment describes China in the last 50 years because it used to be. An, an equally miserable country, and now most, necessarily not everybody, but most of the population's in pretty good material circumstances, plus it's this really disgusting, super wealthy elite. So which country would you want to live in? The second point that I'll give you is, uh, I, I emphasize the word income, and there's just no doubt at all that income to the, to the top has gone way up. But income is not the only factor in how we run our lives. The, the equation for figuring out buying power, buying power is a lot more important than income for almost everybody, is income minus taxes plus benefits divided by household size multiplied by the consumer price index. That's kind of a conceptual equation that your, your math familiar readers are going to say, well, wait a minute, why would you multiply it? But, but that's, 
that's how to understand it. And it, if you look at that equation, and, and a number of academics, including Gary Bertless at the Brookings Institution, have been looking at that equation, remember the same time that income has stalled for the middle class, and there's no doubt that it has, taxes have gone way down, benefits have gone up pretty significantly, household sizes decreased, so household income is spread across fewer people, and because of the inflation or lack of inflation we just talked about, consumer prices have stayed low. If you take that whole equation into account buying power, you find that the average middle class person in the United States has gained about 3% of buying power every single year since World War II ended. And that the gain in buying power is pretty stable. In fact, it looks like an escalator-style curve that just goes up at a 45-degree slope. It's changed very little. Income's gone down, but so have taxes. Benefits have risen. Consumer prices have gone down. Uh, we buy things at Walmart now, and that, uh, whereas it, it might have been the case with less exporting in uh, the 70s and early 80s. Uh, I, I go to Walmart and get a pair of jeans for 10 bucks. It may not be the best jeans, but... Uh, the real dollar cost of almost everything we purchase has gone down steadily in the last 50 years. Uh, the two main exceptions are health care and, and higher education. The real dollar, real dollar cost of those has both gone up, and that's, those are both concerns. But... Most of the food, clothing, cars, gasoline, the real dollar cost of all that stuff goes steadily down. And this is a case where I spend a fair amount of time in the book going through how the modern economy clearly drives us crazy. Nobody likes globalization. I don't like it. It's much too turbulent. But you have to take the bitter with the sweet. It also, the same economic forces that, that drive us all crazy also produce steadily declining real dollar cost of goods also produce plentiful natural resources and agricultural production, and, and most importantly, are causing extreme poverty in the world to decline at a historically unprecedented rate. All those things are good. I wish they could happen without economic turbulence, but I'm not sure that they could happen without economic turbulence. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, well, if you got a chance to see some of the photos that I had on Twitter, I'm at MyHist on Twitter, of me with the Road to Now podcast, Ben and Bob, as part of the Avid Brothers at the Beach Festival. It's a great time, and we did a live podcast about U.S.-Mexico relations. Now, you'll see me there sporting my Hawaiian shirt, but also a pair of new eyeglasses, and I got them from Warby Parker. What's great about them is... You get to try them at home before you buy them. You order five pairs of glasses on the website. They have great designs. And for some reason, uh, there's a number of them that are named after presidential candidates. Maybe that's a My History Can Beat Up Your Politics things. Roosevelt, the Wilkie, the Seymour. Now, I doubt they're naming their glasses uh, after the 1868 uh, Democratic presidential candidate Horatio Seymour. But I like to think so anyway. You pick out five on the website at warbyparker.com slash my history 
and they're going to send five frames to you. You try them on, look at the mirror, see how they fit, ask others, and see how they really fit. What ended up happening, and I think it'll happen with you as well, is what I thought I might end up purchasing when I ordered it online, I ended up purchasing something else. So it was great to have that real-world try-on to be able to look into the mirror and see how they fit. I've worn glasses all my life. I'm a reader, as you know. Warby Parker glasses start at $95, including the prescription lenses. The lenses include anti-glare, very important, and anti-scratch coatings. There's a billion people in the world that don't have access to eyeglasses, and Warby Parker's doing something to help that. For every pair of glasses you buy, pairs distribute to someone in need. So I'm going to post a picture of myself with my uh, Warby Parker glasses on Twitter, so go check that out, of course. Do you have an iPhone X? If you do, be sure to download Warby Parker's app, where you can use their brand new feature. Find Your Fit uses the iPhone's True Depth camera to map and measure key facial features. Using these measurements, it recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that are likely to best fit your face. But the first thing you're going to do is order that uh, try-at-home kit. Head to warbyparker.com slash myhistory to order your free home try-ons today. And a reminder that I'm speaking with Greg Easterbrook, and if you're typing on Amazon, that is Greg with two Gs, Easterbrook, and he is the author of It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. To, to keep a little on that income inequality, because it's such a common argument, especially among progressives, it's probably the number one economic injustice in their minds and in their perceptions. Someone say like, oh, uh, you know, wages were higher, you know, on average in, say, 75 or the average middle class made more or people were in unions. And those things are probably somewhat true, particularly the union stat. Uh, but I think about a person in 1975 and getting their paycheck and dealing with uh, inflation and having that erased. I also wonder about technology. Uh, I think about my dad or my mom and getting that paycheck on Friday and waiting in line on the bank, cashing the paycheck to get dollars, driving all the way back, using gas all the way, and and uh, going to a pizzeria that they could not get a review on online and not know how crowded it is, driving down roads that they could not know how crowded the roads were or what the best route was. Well, I think we should always be suspicious of good old days arguments in any context. And one reason to be suspicious of them is that Donald Trump constantly makes them. He says, oh, I love the old days. Back in the old days, everything was great. And you say, well, exactly when were these old days? What year was it? Where did these good old days occur? Were the good old days the 1950s? And it was impossible for women to work outside the home. There was stifling conformity. There was ex extreme forms of segregation were still legal in the United States. Was the good old days, the 1960s? segregation was still illegal, gay people couldn't marry, all barometers of pollution were rising very fast back then, especially air pollution. Oh, so it was the good old days, the 1970s? That's when we had stagflation, inflation and high unemployment simultaneously. It was the worst time in American history to look for a job. Oh, so the good old days, that must have been the 1980s. That's when our factories were humming. That's what you hear people say. Mm -hmm. In 2017, United States domestic industrial production was 90% higher than it was in the 1980s during the good old days. So was the good old days the 1990s? 
in the Bill Clinton presidency certainly was entertaining, but gay marriage was still illegal back then. The rates of almost all diseases, most noticeably cancer and, and heart disease, were much higher back then. Was the good old days, hey, when were these good old days? It's very, human beings have a natural tendency to feel sorry for themselves. I certainly confess to it. And when we say, oh, back in the good old days, everybody had it so good, but now it's so terrible. Na I, I always challenge people to name the specific year and place. I've got a time machine. I'm going to teleport you back to the past. It's a one-way trip. You can never return to the future. You name the specific year and place where you want to be an average person, and I will send you there. And nobody ever finishes that sentence. Well, you said and place, and that does bring up a point, though, that I might get challenged on if I make such an argument, and that is that, well, yes, Donald Trump appeals to the good old days and, and the like, but one thing he's tapped into, Bruce, is is uh, these people in Ohio and these counties that uh, you, you, uh, you know, I happen to be in New Jersey. I guess I'm in the blue elite. Uh, it doesn't always feel that way. I don't always feel wealthy and, and elite, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I confess. Um, and, and you guys don't understand what's going on in like Macab County, Michigan and the like. So is it, is some of this true that maybe things aren't better in specific geographic locations? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Of course. Of course that's true. Uh, there's no doubt at all that globalization and also factory automation, which if you look at the statistics, it's too, too dry to go into here, but factory automation has had a far greater effect than globalization has had on factory employment. And factory automation would have happened whether China had ever existed or not. But if you look especially at the upper Midwest states, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, there's been job decline there. Uh, everybody who lives in those states either has been a victim of it himself or herself or knows somebody who has. But then you look, up, you look anywhere on the coast of the United States, anywhere along the West Coast, New England, most of the South, uh, Texas, Southwest, those areas are all booming. Colorado's booming. The Dakotas are booming. So we, we used the phrase before the bitter comes with the sweet. It would be ideal if everything was always good for everybody all the time. And maybe someday a second Garden of Eden will be achieved and that will happen. But when you look at macro numbers, you say, are most people mostly better off? And the answer to that is yes, today. Even most people in Ohio are, are mostly better off. Name the, pre name the previous generation that lived better than today's generation, including in Ohio. We have to always 
bear in mind that because of the way the Electoral College works, and I'm a big popular election of the president type, but because of the way the Electoral College works, during recent presidential cycles, the upper Midwest industrial states have been more important than the entire West Coast, New England, and Texas combined, even though the latter places have five times the population. So we hear a great deal about the complaints of the upper Midwest, West, and those are valid complaints. We should hear about them. We don't hear anything at all about what's going on in Texas, California, Oregon, Wisconsin, excuse me, Washington, and New England, because in general, people are happy there. Yeah, I mean, Texas, uh, the area around Dallas, the area around Phoenix, um, uh, these are Atlanta, these are just exploding areas, and yeah, you're, I do believe you're right that there's uh, almost a bias now, especially after the election, a bias in coverage in some of these, uh, the, the Midwest is getting more of their share and coal country is getting more, more of its uh, share uh, than, than some of these expanding uh, stories. Let's talk a bit about another area. Uh, one of the areas you think you're more optimistic about, and I think uh, this is an area that, you know, I know Steven Pinker is another one that has really uh, hit this area and, and had thesis about this, that we are less violent, uh, that violence is down. Um, now, as opposed to the past. And certainly, uh, I talk a lot about this program. I'm always telling people stories about dueling and about the, uh, the congressmen attacking each other. And thankfully, we don't have too much of that these days. Uh, but talk a bit about that. Uh, you're, you're less likely to die by violence, not just in the United States, but anywhere in the world today than at any point in human history. Per capita deaths by violence are in, since World War II ended, obviously World War II was a, was a very different story, but since the end of World War II, we've seen violence, of course there are still wars, of course there are still civil conflicts, but in general, both occurrence of war and intensity of war are in a 50 year cycle of decline, and that's true, that's true even if you take into account one of the many, hor war is horrible, but one of the many horrible effects is civilian deaths that are not caused directly by, by combat. They're caused by embargoes and blockades and things like that. Even if you take those things into account, which, is, which of course you should, the world has grown steadily less violent for at least the last 50 years, by some measures for maybe the last 70 years. Now, in, in the, and, and certainly street crime has declined almost everywhere. Central Park after dark is now just as safe as Yellowstone Park at noon on a bright sunny day. And it's, there's some mystery to why criminal violence is in decline. There are many theories, and I go through them, and it's better than it looks. And there's no, we, we would all wish that there was one single narrative that explained it, and there isn't. Uh, but when you look at why, why nation on nation violence has declined, I think there's a lot of very solid evidence to support that globalization is in fact reducing the desire of countries to fight each other. There's never been a superpower relationship like the one established between the United States and China. And, and it's fair for you to say that some aspects of that relationship are kind of creepy and fragile. There's no doubt about that. But war between the United States and China is close to unimaginable. It would destroy the economies of both nations. So here we are. We have the, the two largest superpowers in the world not arming for war against each other, not threatening each other with their very powerful and dangerous missiles. And at the same time, we see 
democracy mainly rising in the world, not everywhere, of course, but more people, more people vote in free elections now than have, than ever have in world history, including if you do that number on a per capita basis. We see poverty declining. Uh, we see a, a, a favorite statistic of mine that is that global per capita military spending has declined almost every year for 35 years and is now 30% lower than it was 35 years ago. So the amount of money that we spend on things that blow up is in steady decline relative to the population of the world. Now, you, you know, something could go horribly wrong. Nuclear weapons are so unthinkable that only one of them needs to go off for all of these trends to suddenly change. But if you ask yourself, what are the trends? The trends are a generation-long cycle of decline of all kinds of violence for almost everyone in almost every country. And I, I do think that's a great point. We've just been discussing Ronald Reagan on this podcast. And when you look at something like the, the end of the Cold War, I, I think almost sometimes because it happened, it became instantly obvious as if it, that was guaranteed to happen. But it was such a significant achievement, um, the end of the Cold War that Reagan and Gorbachev, I believe, collectively, collectively, um, achieved. And then Nixon going to China and Reagan and other, um, Jimmy Carter recognizing China and Reagan opening up more trade with China and so on and so forth. I think, you know, we, we definitely took a lot of steam out of the, the, the nasty superpower relationships. And, and as you say, there are, but North Korea is such a small nation compared to having what we had in the 80s, which was this huge nation that wasn't really talking to us very well. I, I get in some detail, and it's better than it looks, to the question of, okay, things are, suppose I agree with you, things are basically pretty good right now. Can this last? Is something terrible coming? Can it last? And I, I go, go through and in environmental affairs and agriculture, which is deceptively important, in primary resources and other things, and, and trends in politics, can all of this last? Obviously, I'm convinced that it's possible that it can last. Now, of course, we, we, none of us knows what the future holds. There could be some horrible uh, turn of events waiting. But, but, but I do, I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna type. I'm totally, I'm, I'm, and I'm certainly not arguing that there are no problems. There are all kinds of problems. They can get worse. Can society handle the problems that are coming, including we're, we're, we're about, we've got 7 billion people on the earth right now. It's close to cast in stone that there are going to be a total of 10 billion, even though average fertility is in decline. The total the demographic momentum of the world makes 10 billion pretty close to, pretty close to unavoidable. So can we handle all those things? And I, I go into the, 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 the math and, and, and other aspects of whether we can handle them. Let, let me hit you with one important point, Bruce, sure. I know we're close to our, sure. our, our time limit. When you argue optimism to people, I think a lot of people rationally respond, oh, so what you're saying is that we should be complacent. We don't need to do anything because everything is good. And I'm certainly not, boy, am I not saying that everything is good. There's problems, 7 billion, peop 7 billion people in the world means that we have, right now is the maximum number of problems that the world has ever had, and next year it'll be higher, and the year after that, etc. So I certainly don't think it should be complacent. The reason to argue for optimism is optimism is not the belief that everything's fine. Optimism is the belief that problems can be solved. Uh, if you're a pessimist, if you think the world is going to hell, you know, why bother? Why well, let's just order champagne while we still can? Optimists think that things can be fixed. 
and I spend the final third of It's Better Than It Looks saying, here are the reforms that have worked in the past in a wide variety of areas, technological, economic, environmental, etc. If we take these reforms and apply them to the problems of the president, present climate change, inequality, and others, what are we going to do to fix these problems? So I don't want people to think that a, that, uh, that a book about optimism is a book saying everything's fine. It's not. It's a book saying here are the reasons to believe the next round of reforms are going to work. That's a great point to make. And uh, my guest has been Greg Easterbrook. He is the author of It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. Greg, thanks for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Sure. Thank you, Bruce. The premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Please consider it. It can be as little as $2 a month. You help out me, support the program. It can be as little as $2 a month. Go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com to check that out. One of the things we're doing is kind of an underground podcast on that extra channel. And I'm doing American Revolutionary War sketches. I'm going to do little sketches of moments. I'm not going to tell the whole story of the Revolutionary War, but just give you some interesting episodes on the revolution. And we have one up. It's about the Battle of Concord. I was verily holding my breath in my hands. What happened on that day? What led up to Concord? And what happened from there? And what were the effects? Because I think it's, although it's taught in history books when we're children, it's not always very well understood the actual events of the day and why everything happened. So check that out. Again, the premium podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. As little as $2 a month and 30 or more premium bonus episodes that on the regular channel people listening would not have access to. Thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.